0: Hi, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Jessica Brockmull, the author of Letters from Sky. In the age of social media, when even email strikes many people as slow compared to a text message, a time when people wrote letters that might not receive a response for weeks seems like ancient history. The idea that love could bloom under such circumstances may be stranger still. Yet here, just a few days after Valentine's Day, I have the pleasure of speaking with an author whose highly regarded debut novel addresses that very situation. It is also set in two of my favorite places in the world, Edinburgh and the Isle of Skye, during both world wars. As I usually do, I will read the first page or two of the book, hear David's first letter to Elspeth, and her reply. Urbana, Illinois, USA, March 5, 1912 Dear Madam, I hope you won't take me forward, but I wanted to write to express my admiration for your book from An Eagle's Eerie. I'll admit, I'm not usually a guy for poetry. More often, I can be found with a dog-eared copy of Huck Finn or something else involving mortal peril and escape. But something in your poems touched me more than anything has in years. I've been in the hospital, and your little book cheered me better than the nurses, especially the nurse with a mustache like my Uncle Phil's. She's also touched me more than anything has in years, although in a much less exciting way. Generally, I'm pestering the doctors to let me up and about so I can go back to my plotting. Just last week I painted the dean's horse blue, and I had hoped to bestow the same on his terrier. But with your book at hand, I'm content to stay as long as they keep bringing the orange jello. Most of your poems are about champing down life's fears and climbing that next peak. As you can probably guess, there are a few things that shake my nerves, apart from my hirsute nurse and her persistent thermometer. But writing a letter, uninvited, to a published author such as yourself, this feels by far my most daring act. I am sending this letter to your publisher in London and will cross my fingers that it finds its way to you. And if I can never repay you for your inspiring poetry, by painting a horse, for example, you only have to say the word. With much admiration, David Graham. I the Sky, 25th March, 1912. Dear Mr. Graham, you should have seen the stir in our tiny post office. Everyone gathered to watch me read my first letter from a fan, as you Americans would say. I think the poor souls thought no one outside our island had ever laid eyes on my poetry. I don't know which was more thrilling to them, that someone had indeed read one of my books, or that someone was an American. You're all outlaws and cowboys, aren't you? I myself admit to some surprise that my humble little works have fled as far as America. From an Eagle Theory is one of my more recent books, and I wouldn't have thought it had time to wing across the ocean yet. However you've acquired it, I'm just glad to know I'm not the only one who's read The Blasted Thing. In gratitude, Elspeth Dunn. And now, please join me in welcoming Jessica Brockmull.
1: Hi, Jessica. Hi there. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for
0: agreeing to talk to us. Um, as our listeners may be able to hear, uh, I am uh, suffering from laryngitis, so Jessica and I have agreed that we are. I'm going to ask short questions, and she's going to get nice long answers, and uh, hopefully I will not uh, mess up the sound too much with coughing and other carrying on. So uh, apologies in advance if the sound is not as good as normal. But I'm really looking forward to talking with Jessica about her novel Letters from Sky, which I actually received Originally, as an advanced review copy on uh, Goodreads, the Internet Book Club. And I read it in two days and I gave it a rave review. And um, then, when I uh, was looking for people to interview, I was very eager to interview Jessica and she graciously agreed. So, um, good morning, Jessica. I hope uh, life is treating you well. And um, tell us about um, your journey as a writer up to the point where you began this novel.
1: Well, I yeah, I'm sure like many writers, I started out as a great reader um, and would go to ride my bike every day in the summer to our sort of little local library where all the librarians knew me and kept the choice books behind the counter when they came in. But it I would read so much that, you know, in my very young mind, I was very worried that I would read through all of the books in the library. And so from a very young age, i, Started writing my own, you know, writing my own sequels to favorite books or, you know, ways that the books could have gone or um, things inspired. I mean, I, I like to say that a lot of my early attempts were, were sort of Little House on the Prairie fan fiction. I mean, so those were my favorite um, series of books for the longest time, and they still are. So I, I started writing when I was very small. Um, I I still have a I still have a book that I wrote in in fourth grade and illustrated with with crayons um, about two kids and a pet frog who find a time machine. So I was interested in, you know, sort of history and exploring that in a book. Even then, um, in college and graduate school, I sort of took a diversion and I, I studied linguistics instead, which I really loved studying. And then got back to writing and sort of growing as a novelist when my daughter was born. She was a very, very easy baby. And a couple of weeks after she was born, I realized that I needed to find something else to do while she was napping, which she did, thankfully, a lot. (laughs) How very considerate of her. (laughs) It was, I know. But it allowed me to sort of get back to something that I had always loved and had sort of set aside while I was studying linguistics and um, but then allowing me to bring that you know newfound love of language into the writing that I did
0: so um your Prescott mentions that you spent several years in Scotland. How did that happen?
1: Well, uh, when our daughter was two, my husband got a job in Edinburgh, Scotland, and it seemed um, the time in our life to just sort of take a chance like that to set off on. A little adventure. we didn't have um, too much sort of tying us tying us to one spot in the u s. and so we we set off, not knowing how long we'd stay or when we'd come back. And um it was sort of it was really amazing at letting me delve more into that history and and express myself in different ways. And you know, Edinburgh is a city of literature, so I think just knowing that was also very inspiring in a lot of ways.
0: It's also a very beautiful city. My mother was born in Edinburgh, and uh, it's actually my favorite city in the world because you can be walking along, and you walk into one close, and you could be in the 14th century, and the next one is, um, you know, 21st century technology. I mean, it's it's a really fascinating, beautifully designed city.
1: I mean, there are so many layers of history, you know, within the one city. Um, which, you know, at least in the places that I've lived in the U.S., which is mostly in the Midwest, you know, just didn't find on the same scale. Right.
0: Yeah, I remember actually when I was a child, I came, I had grown up in the south of England. My parents were Scots, mm-hmm. but they moved south. And so the place near my elementary school had a Roman road. And oh, wow. there was, we were very close to, I remember once visiting um, Abingdon Abbey, which was a 700-year-old a abbey that had been destroyed mm-hmm. under Henry VIII. And then I moved to Chicago, and they would say to me, oh, this building is ancient, it's 40 years old. And I'm thinking, <laughs> even at 11, I thought, no, not quite. <laughs> it's a very different timescale in Europe. <laughs> uh, I we can, ended
1: up we ended up staying for four years there and uh, you know we're back in the midwest now where i no longer have a view of a medieval castle out of my window but oh, i have darn. Of memories of that
0: <laughs> so um so did you spend time on sky as well
1: we we uh took a vacation up on sky um i guess it was our it was after our first sort of festival season in edinburgh you know edinburgh is known for its big summer festivals that bring a lot of tourists into the city, and, and it's, things are very crowded, they're very alive, they're, and we had our first experience with that, and so right after that ended, we, we wanted to sort of take a little little getaway with the family, and our son was uh, three months old then, so we, we jetted up the sky, and we spent a week on a little cottage on the beach, um, you know, we Listen to the rain. We, we charmed across the island, you know, looking for fairies with my daughter, you know, looking under the stone bridges and listening to the rain on the roof that night when we were back in the cottage, you know, walking along the beach looking for fossils. And I had, I had long had the idea to write an epistolary novel and, um, sort of in, inspired to write an epistolary novel because being so far apart from my friends and family and sort of before we had a webcam and before Skype was as easy, you know, I, a lot of my relationships with my friends and family became epistolary. I, you know, it was emails, but we did send some postcards and just that having to, um having to translate everything into words, having to translate my experiences and my enthusiasm and my, my doubts, And with little shades of meaning, I I found this really fascinating, how I was holding on to the relationships in my life with only words, with only, you know, letters, so to speak, even if they were electronic. And I wanted to explore that in a novel. And so I'd had this in the back of my mind. I wanted to write a novel told through letters, which, you know, given my love of historical fiction, would take place in the past, but, you know, probably not too far in the past because I wanted the letters and the language to be accessible to a modern audience. And so just being on Sky, and I I, I don't know, there are a lot of very indescribable things about the landscape and, and how it can change from one side of the island to the other. But I could just see, you know, I could just see a character there. I could see a character sort of free to roam the island, but also feeling bound by its shores, by, you know, looking and you can see, you know, you, you could see across the water from certain parts um, on the island, on the um, east coast of the island, and just see somebody looking across but not being able to go that far, as many of the people who lived there, you know, at least at the point in history which I wrote, you know, didn't, they, they didn't leave, they, they didn't go far from home. And I thought that would be a very interesting character to at least help to tell my story of somebody on the island, able to see the wider world out there, but not really having a connection to it and not really having something to bridge that distance until she gets an unexpected letter.
0: Yeah, that's quite interesting. How did she, you said that you would always want to write an epistolary novel. How does the form of of having to put everything into letters? How does that constrain or perhaps free the telling of the story?
1: Well, I think I think I was sort of uh, fortunate when I started writing it in that I didn't know it was supposed to be a hard format to write a novel in. <laughs> um, I I honestly just sat down and started writing letters to myself and you know, I when I first started writing I would change fonts between Elspeth and David and write a letter and let myself get into somebody else's head and reply. So as a way to write a first draft it was wonderfully liberating. It was a very organic way to get to know my characters and to and to hear their voices. Because I, I felt that their voices came out very naturally in that format in the letter when you're, you know, not trying to impress a reader so much, but just trying to impress the other correspondent who's opening your envelope. Um, and, And as a writer, I'm not one who plots very much ahead of time, who outlines or plans. I like to just jump into it and let my characters tell the story. And so this was a very fun way to do that so much that I, use it as a way of pre-writing now when I write other novels that aren't epistolary, you know, sort of a, as a way to capture my character's voices before I let them launch into the narrative. Um, but it, I mean, yeah, it the epistolary format does have a lot of challenges. You know, the biggest one is that you, when you're writing a letter, if you're staying true to that format, you can't do as much showing, you know, letters are tell and, It's difficult to work dialogue into there in an authentic way. But the series of letters in themselves are sort of an extended dialogue. So, you know, I can keep that in mind. And also it's, you know, it was difficult to, and a lot of this these challenges, you know, erupted during revisions when I was trying to really sculpt it into a novel rather than just a series of letters, which is what the first draft was. Um, Finding this balance between Authenticity and readability. You know, a lot of people have, uh, I've had people comment to me that some of the letters are just far too short to be authentic. People wouldn't have wasted postage. They wouldn't have wanted to send a very quick letter, you know, the way that we send a quick email today. And and I acknowledge that, that that, that sort of veers more towards the readability part of things. Um, of course, people would use all the paper they had if, if it was a letter that they wouldn't hear back from for several weeks. But you know, at some end, some cuts had to be made to keep the pace going, to keep the pages turning. And so that was another very big challenge with writing it, is, is trying to balance, you know, although any historical novelist is, is worried about balancing authenticity with you know, just writing a novel.
0: I'm actually not sure that that's true. I mean, I can understand that people would say that, but I remember... The time that I went to Sky, I was a junior in college, and it was still before the time even where people comfortably made phone calls. I mean, people called across the Atlantic, and my mother assumed somebody was dead. You know, so yeah. um, So I remember those little blue uh, Um, uh, uh, foreign mail forms that people used to write. and I yeah. sent one you know like every two or three days to my parents, and i didn 't never got a reply because by the time they got the letter, I was already on somewhere else but But I remember also that my mother wrote to her mother and to my um, father 's mother every week because they were in Scotland or in England, and she mm-hmm. was in the United States and When people did that regularly, uh, I yeah. think that they did in fact write. Very short letters just because it was like email then. I mean, sometimes, obviously, the 19th century where you had to pay for every page, people crossed their letters and did all of that kind of thing. But, But especially in the United Kingdom where you could write a letter and get a response the next day. I think people probably were much more accustomed to just thinking in terms of writing letters, and probably we 've lost that because we you know we sit down and we dash off an email and we dash off a text and mm-hmm. and that 's our way of expressing ourselves so we assume that if you if we 're writing a letter it 's a big deal, so we assume that it was also a big deal for them i mean that's that part really of the nice. the story didn 't yeah. bother me at all; I just assumed yeah. that these were people who had gotten into a very comfortable relationship with each other. And so they they start off writing these long, very formal letters. And, mm-hmm. and, they, and one of the things I particularly liked about the novel is that you do manage to create a distinct voice for each character, which is what I would think would be the, the difficult part of an epistolary novel, would be keeping them all from sounding the same.
1: Well, thank you. And yeah, I did hope to convey that, that it was a regular enough correspondence that... He didn't always need to fill in fill in the blanks. They, they they were up to speed with things that were happening, and and yeah, when you think about even today, emailing really good friends, sometimes you need to say very little. Right. Yeah. So I know mean, know each other well, and and you can fill in the subtext.
0: Mm Hmm. Or you might send a card and just, you know, write a paragraph in the card or something like that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I can understand the criticism, but I don't actually think it's probably very accurate for the 1910s and the 1940s. I think people probably were quite comfortable exchanging Mm -hmm. shorter communications. Um, Did the fact that it was an epistolary novel, did that make it difficult for you to find? How, How did you find an agent and a publisher?
1: I actually found an agent uh, for a different novel. Ah. Um, I "Letters from Sky" was the first novel that I finished and um, queried to agents. Uh, and after not getting a you know great response for that one, I you know well I revised that. I went to submit another, and then a third. And it was on the third novel that I started to submit that I. Um, did secure my agent so and and letters from Sky was actually not the first one that we tried to sell um it was it was just sort of a very fortunate thing when she said, "Well, you know what other novels do you have other than the one that you queried me for um and I said, well, you know I, I have this one that I wrote quite a while ago, but you know it's kind of weird, it's epistolary i I don't know you know that might be a really tough sell and um she said, I, I think this one is it. And very fortunately for me, it was. Well, that's great. I did, I did spend a while querying agents, uh, a few years. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. real slog.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, so it sounds
0: from what you're telling me that, the, that what really works for you are the characters. So you start with the characters and you go from there. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, it's interesting. With- yeah, go ahead. I, well, I was going to say, and, and with Sky, you know, the setting definitely played a, a big role in the inspiration. I, you know, for me, at least, when I was writing the first draft, the setting and the island was, you know, almost a, a, a third character in, in in my little relationship there mm-hmm. with Elspeth and David. Um, but you know, a, a, you know, talking about inspiration. Some, sometimes it's a character, sometimes it's a setting, sometimes it's, you know, a, a little historical event. Sometimes, you know, which was also the case with Sky, is the desire to, you know, try a different format or try something a little bit different than what I'd been doing before. I actually, um you know, I I'm always reading history. I'm always reading a lot of nonfiction and you know, you always find the best stuff in the footnotes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or in the little paragraphs that are sort of skipped over to move on to the bigger stuff. And so I, I keep, I actually keep these little blank index cards in all the rooms in my house. And when I come across one of these little interesting footnotes or the idea for a character, you know, Scottish poet, um, or you know, sort of an image or an idea or a line, you know, I'll jot it on these cards. So when I'm, you know, I wasn't doing this when I wrote, Letters from Sky, but, you know, now what I'll do is I'll sort of spread them out when I'm looking for inspiration. I'll see what cards sort of look like they might fall together, you know, what characters and what settings and which little images and ideas can sort of align to make a potential novel. Oh, that's fascinating. Um,
0: So let's talk about your Scottish poet, um, Elspeth Dunn. Um, How did you come up with her?
1: Well, I mean, as I mentioned, I sort of could just picture her there on the island. Um, But, you know, I wanted to write a heroine who was, you know, independent, forward-thinking. I wanted to write a a heroine that, you know, sort of appealed to my modern sense, but I wanted to write her very strongly within the context of her time and her place. And, you know, after doing research um, about sort of the islands and during that time, Scottish islands, I I felt like that really worked for the kind of character I wanted to create. You know, it was a um <clears throat> it was a place where she could, you know, live live fairly independently, you know, on her croft, Um where she could do so without well and she and she she did sort of feel a little little bit of an oddity, you know, at at, at the time Women would, when they would walk into town or when they would walk to visit somebody, they would carry knitting with them. I've seen some great pictures of women carrying, and, and they knit while they walked. And Elsa talks about always carrying a book with her. Um, so she could be a little bit of an oddity within her time and place while still not seeming anachronistic. And to me that was important to make somebody very interested in, in reading, in learning, in dreaming, well, not necessarily going out and doing things that were vastly unusual for a woman in her time and place.
0: Was there something about the World War I setting in particular that drew you to that period?
1: Yeah, it's it's an era that I've always been very interested in, and I, I think that might be because I sort of approached learning about World War I as an adult. It always seemed to be something that we missed in history classes. Like we'd get as far as sort of the end of the 19th century, and then the next semester we'd pick up with World War II. So it was sort of this this left out period that I approached because I wanted to learn about it as an adult, you know, and I chose my own readings and things like that. So I've always been very interested in that, and it seemed to really suit me for the purposes of an epistolary novel. I mean, it's far enough back that yeah, people were relying on letters, you know, they weren't using phones and letters could take a long time to get from one place to the other. And I wanted that, um, you know, sort of tension for the story. But it's also recent enough that the language sounds modern and accessible to our ears. Um, And I thought that was important for making a novel that readers would you know, really want to read and identify with.
0: So the book opens in 1912. So in 1912, nobody knows that World War One is on the horizon. And Elspeth is a poet in Scotland. She's married. She's, I th- it's she has several books of poetry out at the time when the novel opens. Is that right? And she gets this letter from a young man. Very, he's very young, really. I mean, he's 2021, I think, Mm -hmm. um, in, um, in the Midwest, the American Midwest. And tell us about David.
1: Well, he is, he is a college student who is very reluctantly studying, um, natural sciences his father is a physician in Chicago, and his father sort of wants him to follow in his footsteps. And as David's never really felt a sort of strong passion for one career path over another, um, he's going along with it for now, but he's sort of struggling in school at the time that, that we meet him. Um, he's, and, and he really is sort of a kid when we meet him. He pulls college pranks. Um, he's impulsive, he makes rashful decisions and this is sort of a contrast to Elspeth who he writes to, who lives on the Isle of Skye but has never left. Even though she's always thought about it, um, she's sort of always been bound by her home When she talks a little bit about her childhood, um, we learn that she's grown up in a family with three brothers. Uh, Her father's a fisherman and sort of expected that her brothers will follow in that path. But she's very close to her brother Finlay. And as kids, they would sort of sit along the shore and they'd look over the horizon, sort of like I did while I was at Sky, just seeing the land on the other side and wondering what else was out there. You know, they they talk about going off together someday when they're adults, about going to to college, going to school on the mainland, exploring the world, but Elspeth never leaves. She's afraid of water, and that keeps her bound to sky, and knowing that she can never leave, her brother also stays. Yeah, that was a very
0: interesting part of the story. She's actually, I mean, I suppose she's presenting it this way because she's a writer, but it it was a lovely way to describe it. She's afraid of the water horse. Um, I'm not, yeah. my Gaelic is, you know, pretty awful. So <laughs> I won't try to say, I think of something like Echeliska or something, but in any case, yes. um, she's afraid of the water horse, which comes up from the deeps to, to mm-hmm. munch on people. <laughs> unwary yeah,
1: passes I, by and and to me it really made sense to bring in a lot of the uh, the mythology and the sort of legends of the island um it was fascinating to read through um uh, stories and 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 fairy tales and well just just the stories of the islands and the highlands the the myths the, that sometimes find their way into the very place names on the map. And, and even reading letters from people who lived on sky and sort of in the, you know, the other islands and highlands at that time, you know, even in this early 20th century era, they, they were still a big part of their life. The, these, the, Elspeth at one point talks about the imps and the creatures who inhabit the island and, you know, I, I see those turn up in letters and diary entries and memoirs of the time. There, so even at the sort of late period of time, they they were present. It's
0: also a rather charming insight into her personality because, in many ways, she's she's very Scots. You know, she's very down to earth and very practical, and she's the one who. Um, talks about you know david's jackets being too wild and him engaging in all yeah. these pranks and this kind of thing and yet she's got this little fae side to her that absolutely that comes out in the poetry and everything else um
1: so i thought, i think to me that's what sort of connects them when you mm-hmm. their characters on the surface they're you know they're very different like you said she's practical she's you know, she she stays at home. She she tries to make everybody happy around her. Um, you know, and, and we sort of learn that that's also part of her past. Uh, and and David is not. He's he's willing to just impulsively set off on an adventure just because it suits him. He, he's very much a boy. But the thing that connects them is this sort of this this yearning, this dreaming, this willingness to look beyond the surface to see what else might be there. And in her case, a lot of it is her sort of superstition that she's grown up with, which, which incidentally also leads her towards her poetry. Um, and for him, sometimes it, it takes a little longer for him to realize that, I think, mm-hmm. that he has that way of looking at the world.
0: I think, well, of course, because his father is basically telling him the whole time that he's supposed to be, that he's supposed to be practical, that he's supposed to think about what's in his long-term interest, that he should become a doctor because it's a good career, not necessarily because that's what he wants to do. So it's, it's a real, you know, at one point he wants to be a ballet dancer, David, and he, He right, he's, um. He's very much, you know. I, I liked him very much. He's he's the kind of character that you could imagine, you know, just taking off for World War One. Uh, you know, he would have been an RAF fight, uh, fighter p- mm-hmm. pilot if he'd been a Briton in 1940. He would. He just has that personality.
1: Absolutely. It was. Um, it was very. I, I didn't. So David um, helps out with World War One before the U.S. enters the war they don't enter until later and he starts helping out in 1915 he joins the um American Ambulance Field Service which i just found really fascinating to learn about it was an offhand suggestion from my dad who was a you know sort of military history buff um that you know maybe i should look into that and it it was such a perfect fit for david it was a a volunteer service of um young men they were they were mostly young college educated you know sometimes upper class uh men who volunteered to drive ambulances for the french army and it seemed such a perfect fit for my david i mean for the most part they were they were daredevils they you know saw this as as yes helping out but also a grand adventure and they were usually young men of very strong ideals. I mean, they really felt like they should be involved at a time when the United States was exercising, you know, more public caution.
0: It did seem like a really good fit for him. Um, I also wonder how much of their relationship is in part caused by the fact that it's, it's at least for the first three or four years almost, It's has to do with... Only letters. So just as people fall in love on the internet now, or they fall in love in email, there's something special about the the letter format that I think makes it. In, in one sense, it's revealing, but in another sense, every communication is, in a sense, crafted. You don't send it out unless you're you're happy with it. Do you yeah, have any thoughts about true. that?
1: Um, yeah, that's a that's a good point, and you know, it's definitely something that we see today too in, you know, sort of online or email relationships. Um, And that, yeah, you have have the time to craft and present the person that you want to be to whoever you're corresponding with. Um, You know, but after a time, I tried to show that falling away. You know, I tried to show more honesty creeping in. And... Because yes, letters are a place where you can present who you want to be, but they're also a place where you could be who you really are, you know, with that curtain of almost animate, um, with, with, with that, that curtain in front where you know the other person's not going to see who you are. You know, sometimes we see that disastrous effects online. Mm-hmm. Um but it yeah. is like what
0: the, the the you know the mechanism that has people tell their life stories to strangers. In effect, you know that that exactly. that perception of distance paradoxically gives people almost a sense of that it's okay to open up because they you know they have this Absolutely. protective barrier. It's it's a very interesting phenomenon, I think. And, and, and you do and, capture it over, you know, the first letters are very stiff and formal. The two that I read mm-hmm. in the beginning are very stiff and formal. And then they become more and more open and casual and shorter and, you know, more like a conversation as, as they go on. But it is, it's still it's still an sort of, interesting ph- phenomenon that they, they build this relationship without yeah. actually seeing each other or, or having a conversation. I mean, they do have a conversation, but the conversation is entirely in letters.
1: It's true and and they discuss this too at one point in the book they try to make plans to meet and um elsa chickens out mhm and she she gives the reason that she's afraid and you know having i mean i'm happily married and haven't been looking online for you know dashing young college students recently but i do have online friendships so you know i understand that fear you you've sort of built up this person first of all And then you've revealed more of yourself than maybe you would to somebody face-to-face. And then how are they going to see you? Mm -hmm. How is that going to change your face-to-face meeting, your conversation? Um, You're already so raw and vulnerable just through the things you revealed in the letters without ever having seen face-to-face.
0: And um, And I would imagine there's also a fear that the other person isn't going to measure up. I mean, that she she wouldn't... She wouldn't express that because you know we're more likely to say, "Well, I'm afraid I wouldn't measure up." But you know, you've built this person up in your mind, and when he arrives, you know, he's still going to throw his socks about. (laughs) You know, whatever people do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, they they they've felt the sort of spark on the page. They've felt this, um, you know, kinship almost. What if that's not there? And I could see that being terrifying. Mm -hmm. And David sort of, he sort of talks about it a little bit in one of his letters, if you don't mind me reading. No, please Uh, go. After she talks about her fears and, and not wanting to see him in person, you know, he writes, think about when you first meet a person, Sue. Sue is his nickname for her. You have to get past all of the superficial nonsense, the appraisal of accents and checked jackets, an interrogation of appearance. After you've deemed each other worthy, then you could actually settle down to get acquainted, to begin those first tentative probes of the mind. Find out what sort of thing fuels the other, what makes them scream, what makes them laugh, what makes them tremble on the rug. You and I are lucky. We never had to worry about the first part, that visual sizing up. We got to go directly to the interesting bit, beginning to know the depths and breadths of each other's soul. And I sort of, I sort of like that because as a writer, as I was writing it, You know, that's what I do on the page. I'm I'm getting to know my characters through their words. You know, which which to me is a very different process than you know, say, watching a movie or something like that, where it's very visual and you bring that into your interpretation and into your judgment of them.
0: And that's interesting um, because my thing actually is I have to. I, I'm a plot-first person. Um, mm-hmm. uh, fortunately for me, I, I'm in a writing group with a character-first writer and um, another one who's sort of in the middle. So I always have someone there to tug on my chain and say, you know, who is this person? But part of the reason I do that is because I only see my characters when I actually put them in motion and, and they start doing things. And Okay. And then by the things they do and the things they refuse to do, I can start to get a sense of who they are as people, Um, and part of what they do is, of course, the dialogue—the things they say and the things they care about. But a lot of it for me is—I would have a really hard time, I think, writing an epistolary novel for that reason, because I have to see them, you know, running around doing things. But it sounds to me as if you're saying, for you, what works best is just to let them talk, basically. The
1: words, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's the words. I need to know what they're going to say. And what they're not going to say, what are they keeping from the other person?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what sorts of things are they hinting at? What are they leaving open to interpretation that tells me a lot about the type of person that they are and what kind of relationship they have with the other or what kind of relationship they'd like it to be?
0: Yeah, and of course letters are perfect for that because secrets are an important part of of novel, you know, of, of any novel. You know what what is being said and what is being retained, and of course letters are are a perfect forum for that. So part of the, um, the story that we haven't talked about yet is um, that part of the story takes place in World War Two. I, I suspect we're reaching the part of the plot where we don't want to give too much away, but the World War Two story also involves El- Elspeth and Elspeth's daughter, Margaret. Um, tell me, it's a very nice tension in the story uh, because they, the book itself goes back and forth between the, the World War One portion and the World War II portion, and they fill okay. each other in. But what, were, what was it that made you decide to, to structure the novel that way?
1: Well, in the first the first draft was nothing but the letters between Elspeth and David, and that was the story I wanted to tell, and when I wrote the first draft, I thought, well, this will be it. This is complete, you know, in, in terms of, um, I guess, breadth of story, but I realized when I reread it that, that there there were gaps. There were things happening behind the scenes. There were things that happened before and after that affected the correspondence and affected Elspeth's life, but weren't directly related to it so that she could um, expose those in the letters, in the course of the letters between Elspeth and David. Um, and and again, I realize that's one of the other limitations of an epistolary novel, is that when you have it limited to two characters, the way that I had and the way I wanted to keep it, um, there are gaps. And I needed to, I needed a way to fill in those gaps. And so I came up with the idea of having her daughter find the letters and then through letters of her own, sort of uncovering parts of her mother's past that were never revealed to David, but in David's story. And so I introduced Margaret and a few other characters to help not only fill in the gaps of Elspeth's story... And to tell the reader the things that neither Elspeth nor David could tell, um, but also to bring their story forward in time to um, let us know what happened in sort of sort of the intervening years. And um, as I did that, I was able to sort of bring in a you know an extra layer to the story where it's not just a story about, you know, love between a romantic couple, but I was also able to explore themes of sort of family love, um, you know, a mother and daughter bond, the love of friendship. And, and to me, that was really neat to do. All of these relationships held together with letters.
0: Yeah, it it does read very well. And part of the... The driving force of the World War II story seems to be that Elspeth believes, rightly or wrongly, that her daughter is about to make uh, some of the same choices that Elspeth made, and she is not comfortable with that. Was that an accurate way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, at the time when sort of Margaret's story begins, she is venturing tentatively into her own wartime romance. And um, you know that, along with the fact that she's in another war, which is literally hitting closer to home, you know there are bombs falling outside of their window, um, sort of brings it all back for Ed, for Elspeth. Um, brings back the last war, her romance then, and what that romance had left her with. Do you
0: see the two wars as being um, fundamentally the same experience or do you see them as very different experiences?
1: I see them as different experiences in that the characters are very different. I mean, they're very close. Elspeth and Margaret are very, have a very close relationship, but I've tried to really express that they're different people and have a different view of the world and a different way of of setting out Um you know, Margaret sort of taken this very careful early twentieth century independence that has had, and and sort of expands it out. And um, you know, we see her we see her traveling quite a bit, which was fun to do. But you know, in terms of their relationships, you know, their stories. I tried to make their stories parallel in that they're they are both involved in romances during the war they are both holding on to secrets of their own and that they want to both work together to a place where they are honest with one another. Um, And so I guess in that way, their characters and their own stories are similar.
0: One other thing that we haven't mentioned is that Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elspeth is of course the Gallic form of Elizabeth, but Elspeth's um, poetry comes and goes as well with her experiences. Yeah. So um, I won't go into the details of that or how uh, another way in which she and David connect uh, through literature. Yeah,
1: she she does have writer's block, like any but writer. She does, yeah. and, but she, she sort of tries to map it and tries to figure out. You know, what is her muse? What is it that inspires her? What makes it come and what makes it go? And I, as you can't show as much in an epistolary novel as you can in a narrative, you know, I try to use her poetry to express the ups and downs of her emotions. Before we wrap up, do you have a favorite passage that you'd like to share? Um, sure, I would. I, one of my favorite passages is a letter that Elspeth sends to Margaret when Margaret leaves for the first time to meet her, um, love interest. And Elspeth writes, you only knew how it feels to run after someone for a brief snatch of time. How the world stops spinning just for a moment when you hold them in your arms and then starts again so fast fall to the ground dizzy if you knew how every hello hurts more than a hundred goodbyes. But you don't. I never told you. You have no secrets for me, but I've kept a part of myself locked away always. A part of me that started scratching at the wall the day the It started howling to get out right now, the day you ran off to meet your soldier. I should have told you, should have taught you to feel your heart, taught you that a letter isn't always just a letter. Words on the page can drench the soul.
0: That's really lovely. Thank you for reading that. Um, What would you like readers to take away from Letters from Sky?
1: I mean, I would like readers to take away that relationships of all sorts were begun and held together through letters then, and they still are today. And that words are powerful, just as Elsa said in the passage I just read. Sometimes a letter isn't always just a letter. Sometimes it can be a, a romance, friendship, or a family trying to maintain closeness in a world that sometimes feels more apart every day. Thank you. Um, what are you writing now? Um, I am working on another story set during World War I. mostly in Paris this time which has been really fun to research Do you do a lot of research for your novels? Uh, I do, I do a lot of reading Um, I was lucky enough to visit Paris to see some of the places that I'm writing about You know, and I especially love reading obviously letters That's great, that's another
0: advantage for working with the 20th century you actually have letters to read Absolutely So thank you so much for sharing your time with us Jessica Thank you so much for having me and thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Jessica Brockmole, author of Letters from Sky. You can find out more about her at www.jabrockmole.com. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at N E W, B O O K S capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at blog blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. Goodbye until next month, when I will host another conversation about new books and historical fiction, uh, I hope without laryngitis. Thank you.